I don't think so. I think they are literally wandering down a highway with um, sticks and, you know, like, like old-timey hobos looking for a place to play baseball. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is July 21st, 2020. And I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. I've got baseball fever. Uh, yeah, I know. This is going to be exciting. We get to finally talk about baseball as it's actually happening and not just as a hypothetical, probably. We hope. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from well, hypothetical, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Well, right. <laughs> that voice you hear is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. How's it going? Hello. How are you, Sarah? Good. Are you as excited for baseball to start? Um, as excited as you and Neil? No. Never. That would be true every year. But yeah, I'm, I'm uh, kind of excited. Yeah, sure. Why not? Wait. Is your favorite sport football? Yeah, well, college. Golf, actually, I think, golf. No, I think we're all college football, NFL football, but yeah. Well, you're maybe in luck after like a sort of contentious weekend of uh, players tweeting hashtag we want to play at the NFL uh, for not having any safety or health protocols in place. On Monday, the league and the union agreed to daily testing so the training camp can begin in a week training camp for the NFL begins on July 28th and they didn't have a COVID testing protocol in place. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, who needs, I don't know who needs a plan or uh, leadership from, uh, you know, who's signaling this? It's m- kind of mind boggling. I mean, everyone, we all sort of thought, all right, I was, I didn't think that the NFL would have it figured out before the other leagues, but I thought they had enough time to, at least adopt what the other leagues were doing and, you know, have something in place. So there was a possibility for playing and that I can't, I just, I don't understand how that didn't happen. It would almost be like if another country showed you how to open schools <laughs> and you just ignored it and did nothing the whole time and then tried to open schools. It would be like that kind of scenario, right? Let's just uh, talk about hypotheticals. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, off the top of your head. On today's show, baseball is back. Almost. (laughs) Maybe. We hope. We'll preview what to watch during MLB's 60-game season that starts Thursday. We'll also be joined by soccer writer Bria Felician to take us through some of the highlights of the NWSL Challenge Cup and what we can expect going into the semifinals. And finally, we'll have another special guest join us to take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Major League Baseball's abbreviated 60-game season begins this Thursday when the world champion Washington Nationals take on the New York Yankees. And what happens after that? Who knows? (laughs) There are a lot of opinions out there right now on how all of this is going to go. Jake Mintz and Jordan Schusterman of The Ringer talked about several possibilities for the story of the 2020 season on their baseball barbecue podcast, including this option. What if the Astros win the World Series? In some ways, it would be perfect. <laughs> because, right? Because it's like, this season is such a Shonda. It's such a joke. 
as it's, is. It's such a mess. It's made so many. It's <laughs> it's it makes so many people uncomfortable. It's made so many. All of it is so screwed up, and like everything about the country, <laughs> and like there's so many things that would just this would top it all off. The right, like it, it would be very 2020. Right, it would be very apropos if the most hated team in baseball emerges victorious after this tournament sprint we're about to have. So the messiness of how this season got going with the bitter contract negotiations and the many positive cases and, you know, the concern about whether we even should be doing this, that, that's all that's all fair. But does it really feel like the season is a joke, Jeff? Or, or do you think we won't care about any of that once teams start playing? Both. I think it's both. I <laughs> think the way that the whole way this has gone down it's obviously a joke and i don't think we know the long term you know we discussed on a previous episode about you know what this means for you know two entities the players union and the owners have to renegotiate later um but yeah it was ugly it's a joke it's a joke still in a certain respect with regards to the toronto blue jays um i get are we calling them the toronto blue jays i don't even know buffalo blue jays wait yeah, have they buffalo. decided yet where they're gonna play I don't think so. I think they are literally wandering down a highway with um, sticks and, you know, like like old timey hobos looking for a place to play baseball. Um, But I think ultimately, I don't I don't care. I don't think any baseball fans cares. I think we'll be very happy to have something um, to distract us and to entertain us. And, And look, baseball is very tribal just look at you two guys people who are big baseball fans are huge baseball fans and i i think that group will who might be the most indignant about you know how this isn't a true season are actually gonna be the the core fans who will get the most out of this to see some baseball and um you know i worry about the casual fan but in the long-term effects on the casual fan. But uh, I think, I think it's exciting. I'm uh, bring it on. Like I'm not turning down sports at this point. Yeah. And I don't think it's a joke to the extent that when we looked at this, the odds of the best team winning in a 60 game season are not that much lower than the odds of the best team winning in a 162 game season. So if we're talking about the legitimacy of the champion or the legitimacy of the season being a joke, I don't think that's really fair to say uh, if, if you look at the numbers. Most years, we you know we can't be really confident that the best team won. So like it's not going to be that different this year. You know, going through sixty games and then playing a full postseason, I, I don't. I'm not going to say that the team that wins the World Series is any any less deserving or less worthy than a, another team. You know, in a normal year, but I, I think certain people will do that. But I do feel like it's the kind of thing that's forgotten over time. Right. I mean, I don't. I don't think it's a joke in terms of the real baseball value of it. It will be different, and that is true. And and there will be. I mean, I think the wild card is even dumber this year, given that the teams don't. No teams will play each other from any other divisions within the same league, which is just very stupid. Yeah, the strength of schedule and the the um the weird unbalanced schedule is creating some very odd differences between teams that I think we'll not necessarily appreciate until 
the end of the season, depending on how it works out. So for instance, if you're an average team and you played the Minnesota Twins schedule, that's Sarah's uh, beloved twins, <laughs> you would have a 522 winning percentage. Whereas if you're an average team and you played the Baltimore Orioles schedule, you would have a 475 winning percentage. So uh, now a little bit of that is the Orioles don't get to play the Orioles. Right. Yeah. Which exactly. is a little bit of a benefit to them, but it does kind of speak to the difference between you know, the the best and worst um, strengths of schedule is about 50 points of winning percentage, uh, all because of where, you know, geographically you happen to line up. Yeah, I mean, but let's be honest, if the Twins uh, make it to the playoffs with that uh, with that easier schedule, they're just going to lose to the Yankees in the first round anyway. So what even difference does it make? That's how we'll know if it's a real season, if the Twins lose to the Yankees in the postseason. If they don't, then then you can hang the asterisk on the yeah. season, I think. <laughs> I think that's right. I'm grateful that, well, I don't really care, to be honest, because I'm kind of a nihilist these days, but um, if the, that the Red Sox and the Cubs have already broken their streaks, because that would have been pretty funny if they broke it this year. People would have been like, nah, did you break it? Did you really? Right. <laughs> you know? um, but the Dodgers certainly, you know, have are on a, a you know, a long run of, of not winning now, especially being in contention. So it'll be interesting if they put it together whether people are like kind of i guess but i i agree i just to go back to the initial point i don't hold anything against the winner of of whatever in some in some respects this is harder than any other season all right so let's talk about the 538 prediction model which is live on our site today very exciting neil tell us who the model likes this year how how likely is it that the astros <laughs> will have the last laugh so, yeah, we give the Astros a 14% chance of winning the World Series, which is tied with the Yankees for the second best in baseball. I think it's somewhat clear, at least on paper, that the Dodgers are the favorites. They have a 20% chance to win the World Series. And if you just look at their team after they added Mookie Betts, it's just ridiculous. They were already one of, if not the best pay, uh, teams on paper going into the season. And then you, you add one of the best players in the game, probably... You know, the only player that, uh, aside from maybe like Alex Bregman, who has challenged Mike Trout for the best player in baseball by wins above replacement in the past handful of years, is Mookie Betts, uh, especially in that 2018 season that he had. And so then those three are sort of the clear top three. And then you have the Nationals and Twins tied at 7% apiece. So go Sarah. The Rays at 5%. The Cleveland Indians at 4%. And the Mets at 3% tied with the Reds, the Braves, the A's, the Cubs, the Brewers, and that's it. Because then next, the Cardinals are at two percent. I don't know <laughs> if I buy the Mets in that conversation necessarily, but then and and I think the Braves might be a little bit underrated here, looking at the model. But at the same time, I mean, the Reds are a weird team to be in there too, but they're an interesting team, uh, maybe a little bit of a dark horse. And the NL Central is just the ultimate logjam, and that's going to be exciting to to parse out too. Yeah, I was surprised that the Reds were the predicted to lead the NL Central, but then it's all like the top four. Every team except Pittsburgh is within one game of each other in our model. And that's, I think, the other thing about that we need to remember about a short season. It's going to be harder to gain much distance. So there's these are going to be really close races just by definition, which is sort of exciting, right? I mean, yeah, it would be like if every team entered into play on July 23rd tied for the <laughs> lead in every division. 
That yeah. would be insane if that happened normally uh, in, a, in a real season. But that's like basically what we're looking at. It is interesting. It is because baseball does have that sort of, you know, you go to a game, your team loses, you're on the train home, uh, you know, the seven train. <laughs> Hypothetically. You know, just a train. Um, and it's like, oh, what's the big deal? It's one game. But now it's like you don't really have that as much. You know, each game matters, especially if you see a team go out to like a one and nine start. I mean, there'll be like real panic, I think, if that happens to a, a one of these contenders. Or what if like a rando team like, I don't know, the Tigers or the Orioles or something like that rattles off like eight wins in its first 10 games. And then all of a sudden they're like in play in, in a playoff race, even though we think there might be on paper one of the worst teams in baseball. I feel like this is actually going to be the thing I don't like about like college football, which is like every game is so important. Once you lose your first game, you're just done for the season yeah. or or definitely once you lose your second. Yeah, exactly. And I hate that about college football because if you're a fan of a team that is not in the national championship picture, uh, hypothetically again, um, then, then everybody makes it seem like your season doesn't matter. And I hate that because sometimes sports are just fun for sports sake and it's not all about the winning guys. Anyway, that's what I like about baseball, that it's a long season and it doesn't not every game matters so much. Yeah, but now you're you're three bad Homer Bailey starts away from <laughs> potentially missing the playoffs. Three bad Homer Bailey starts. How could that possibly happen every year? Probably. Anyway, Neil, I'm surprised that the model is still um, relatively high on the Nationals. I, I, I guess the thinking is they just get better when they lose star players in the middle of their lineup. <laughs> I mean, it's held up so far. I was a little surprised by that, too, because I thought they would maybe take a little bit of a step back with Rendon. But you have to also remember all of the players that they have coming back, including Juan Soto, who uh, I think at age 20 last year had a 400 on base percentage. I mean, he's going to improve. Uh, And so I think if you look at who they have left over the cupboard is is far from bare for them even after losing a player of Rendon's stature and also maybe you know the models don't necessarily think that Rendon is quite as good as it, it, we kind of thought of him during the postseason last year because well, we'll probably talk about the Angels in a second but they are despite all this kind of hype around them with Madden and Rendon and Otani coming back and all that we only have them projected in third place with a 24% chance of making the playoffs. So they might be a team that is a little overvalued. And I don't know what that says about Rendon's impact. That is interesting because we, I think everyone wants to believe that Trout has a chance to uh, win a playoff game and that, you know, his supporting cast is better, but maybe, maybe not enough better. I Like what is holding them back? I mean, really? Yeah. If you think about it, you would think that if you had Trout, you're adding Rendon. You've got Otani. You've added some pitchers, Dylan Bundy. I don't know how much that moves the needle, but you know it's something that this would be, you know, the prime year. But then you look at who else is in their division. Right. I think that's another issue. Is you know you got the Astros, who again aren't going away. You know, I'd like. I think we'd all, uh, you know, baseball fans. Pro- the majority of them probably just wish they would go away. Everyone they won't even get a chance. In the to city boo- of Houston, <laughs> right? They won't. Uh, fans won't even get a chance to boo them this year. Uh, but then, yeah, you got the A's. I mean, the Rangers are at least kind of interesting. And then, if you're in the AL West, you flip it around. And you got to play the Dodgers. You know, yeah. a bunch of times. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think that uh, it's it's a little disappointing to see that the odds of Trout 
making the playoffs again are so low in our model. But again, who knows? Maybe we're we're overly down on them. Yeah, we'll find out fast anyway. Well, let's not forget the rule changes. Will the universal designated hitter destroy everything you love about the game, Jeff? Um, no, it, it won't. <laughs> it, it won't. I'm over it. You know, it, it feels like a silly argument. Um, I still don't quite understand how, why, why we need to do this. It, it sort of feels like pork on like a Congress bill. Like they just kind of, you know, tacked it on as a rider. Oh, by the way. It's to protect pitchers. Protect pitchers. Okay. Yeah. I mean, from what? Strike you know? out? Yeah. From game? Um, <laughs> from wear and tear. Won't this actually create more wear and tear because you don't have to take them out of the game when their uh, lineup spot comes up in like the sixth inning and you're just like, oh, I should pinch hit now. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it there's that. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, whether it, it's one of these things, you know, the genie out of the bottle theory, whether, uh, you know, this this will be permanent. I, I certainly think that's probably the direction they're heading. But we thought that was the direction they were heading for a while anyway. Also. It'll be interesting just psychologically what happens to NL pitchers because they don't have that, um, you know, that little reprieve when you're coming out and you're seeing that the the eighth hitter starting the lineup and you can probably get a couple quick outs and this will be uh, not that much of an inning uh, in terms of uh, offensive threat from the opposing team. That said, the Mets, I say this as a Met fan and the Mets might be the I think you could make a good case that they're probably the biggest uh, beneficiaries of this with um, Cespedes being able to DH. He's probably like, you know, Kyle Schwarber's another good case for the Cubs. But those are probably the two biggest players who are really natural DHs, natural yeah. DHs, um, who are in National League teams. So now that I think that there will be some teams that benefit from this. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely true. What do you think about the other rules, like the whole extra inning nonsense with uh, each inning starting with the runner on second. I guess you know what I think of that. <laughs> yeah, you've made that clear. <laughs> I That one is like, wait, why? I mean, we want games to end in like a reasonable amount of time because more time spent on the field is more exposure for uh, for players to potentially get the virus from each other. So, you know, this will end games faster. It's been sort of demonstrated in the minors that um, extra inning games they they don't go past um, the tenth inning uh, anywhere near as often when you have this rule in place because there's an, a runner instantly in scoring position. So I kind of like it. I hate dragging on through extra innings and just being like, once you reach the point where you no longer want your team to win, you just want it to be <laughs> over. That comes up a lot in extra innings in baseball. So I will be glad no matter what. And I th- feel like it does make more sense in the DH, which I agree with you, Jeff. Is like. It feels like something they tacked on, and I'm sure it was like a bone thrown to the players' union yeah, to get that's you know another. What it was, yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, and extend the life of veteran player, you know, their um, their playing career uh, more than anything else. But it has nothing to do with the pandemic specifically. Where at least with the extra inning rule, you could say, well, we want games to be over faster. To to wrap this up, kind of talking again about the the original take and how how this season is so strange and and maybe a joke to some people. Do you guys think that anything is going to change about the way we're, we're covering baseball or thinking about baseball this year, given what is going on? Or do you think it'll be more just sort of business as usual for 
spectators. I, f- I feel like I'm in this weird space where, uh, you know, one half of me is like, sports are not a great idea. We can't make sure that players are safe. We didn't earn this as a country. It's, you know, it, things aren't progressing well enough. Too many people are still getting sick and too many people are still dying. But but on the this other hand, it's like there is this mechanism now to try to play safely. Sports are really helpful for people to take their minds off of other terrible things and give us a little unity. And I, I feel like I'm existing in that dual space right now. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that the answer to your question, though, I, I think really depends on it. I mean, this is, this is sort of a non-answer, but it really does depend on how this plays out. I, I mean, we've already seen a lot, almost way more than you would even expect of baseball players test positive for coronavirus, and then how that unfolds, and 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 really, do they dodge a lot of these potential looming landmines um, for the amount of the amount of ways this can go wrong? I think the joy of the game is definitely going to be dampened uh, by the prospect of the virus. And I don't think there's any way that we can get around that. Like there will always be a feeling of guilt or, you know, reservation about excitement and taking, you know, joy out of the game uh, when you know that it's being done potentially at the expense of someone's health or, you know, that, that, like you said, I mean, that's a great thing that you said, Sarah, that we didn't really earn this. We've done nothing to contain the virus, but you know, if we were waiting for the virus to go away totally before bringing back sports, it, it would, we wouldn't play at all until the middle or late next year at the earliest. So I think that this is what everyone is having to go through. We're having to kind of find a way to still have joy, to still enjoy what we can and do a version of what we used to love. So I don't know, it's complicated, but um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think maybe it's actually, there's this thing I've been thinking about, about how maybe these, the bubbles that, some leagues are playing and not so much baseball, although, you know, a little bit um, in that they're just trying to, you know, stay away from the general public, but it might actually be slightly safer. I mean, you, you know, you had all these NDA players test positive and baseball players too, when they were just out in the world, just doing their thing. Um, but when they're away from, you know, us, <laughs> the rest of us, maybe that, maybe they'll actually stay slightly safer. I'm, I'm trying to, I kind of think that too though. Yeah. I think that too. I I think that, um, as long as the players don't go out to like crowded bars, uh, after games or whatever, which like, hopefully they would be smart enough to avoid that. And hopefully the, the teams would be able to put the kibosh on that anyway. Um, but as long as they're not doing that, it seems like they had a lot higher chance of picking up the virus when they were just like, out and about doing their thing in, going to Applebee's. in life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Going to Applebee's is actually the second largest uh, cause of people getting coronavirus right now. Did you know that? I, I, I didn't know that. This is like the reverse of our uh, sponsorship asks. <laughs> yeah. Well, that Applebee's sponsorship is out the window. Whoops. <laughs> All right. I think we can end this discussion here for now. Let's take a quick break and then we'll talk about soccer. The National Women's Soccer League is well into the knockout phase of its Challenge Cup, a month-long tournament that is taking place in lieu of the NWSL's 2020 season. The semifinals are tomorrow, Wednesday, 
pitting the Houston Dash against the Portland Thorns and the Chicago Red Stars against Sky Blue FC. Then we'll crown a champion in Sunday's final. Over the weekend, the quarterfinals saw only one goal, but several exciting upsets. So to help us talk about all things related to the Challenge Cup, we are so excited to welcome 538 contributor Bria Felician. Hi, Bria. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's so great to have you on. You wrote a fantastic piece that's up on the site uh, right now, 538.com, about the Houston Dash and the sort of underdog mentality that they took with them into the Challenge Cup. What makes the Dash so interesting? I think the energy that they came out with in the op- in their opening match, um, it was just so exciting. It's so different from what we're used to seeing from the Dash. Um, that's kind of what sparked my interest in what they were going to do this uh, during the tournament. I think if we had a longer season, we'd see a lot more progress as well. Just such a turnaround from like, there's just so much history of drama, so much history of like, just the lack of like, chemistry on the field, which um, they worked on this offseason, which changing the locker room, changing um, just the lineup and everything. So I think in a non-tournament situation, they would have make, made a lot of more uh, leaps and bounds. Yeah, it was cool to see them get to the, you know, get win their first knockout game. So they get a little bit more, a few more games than maybe they would have otherwise um, to sort of keep that momentum going, I guess. And that was an upset uh, in our model, at least. I know by the seeding it wasn't, but we only gave Houston a 46% chance of winning. But we got to talk about the upset of all upsets in this uh, quarterfinals, which was the Portland Thorns with only a 33% chance of winning, uh, knocking off the number one rated team, according to our model, at least in the entire league, the North Carolina Courage. What was uh, your you know, reaction to that, Bria? I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) because I think the crazy thing, that was Portland's first win. They were the only team in the quarterfinals to score a goal. Britt Eckerstrom is like that goalkeeper. um, I was just like the whole time I was just like, oh, my goodness. So um, I think that was everyone's reaction. I think a lot of people dislike North Carolina for a lot of reasons, but it was still shocking as well because they are by far the most like chemistry fit, like successful team in the last few years. But also I think because of that, they played so much, like their starters played so much that they did look kind of like tired and gassed. So I'm still, that's the most exciting thing I think that happened in the quarterfinals. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Which players, Bria, do you think have really distinguished themselves during the Challenge Cup? Has anyone brought, you know, maybe bought themselves a spot on the national team based on their performance here? The goalkeepers are who I am most interested in because there's so many, especially Portland, but like there's so many good goalkeepers in the league. And I think one person who bought their spot is not the U.S. national team, but it's the Canadian national national team is Kaylin Sheridan. Um, she's always, I think a lot of fans, especially consider her the best goalkeeper for Canada. And their number one is actually with North Carolina, who didn't start the last two games, but they've been rotating. But I think she, there's no way she didn't buy her Uh, number one spot on national team and they're going to have a new coach at some point soon so I think that's number one and then but I'm also interested in the goalkeepers for U.S. because the top three Alyssa Nair is still the best but like the top three I'm interested in what changes for the Olympics because all these (laughs) I am so shocked at like the the level of uh, talent that's going to be that's on the bench in the NWSL I'm very I'm shocked about that as far as the field I could not figure out who 
is going to break through because there's so many players that didn't make the World Cup team. And then there's a couple more spots, but um, the goalkeepers are most interested in because there is only three. And there's so much talent. But, I mean, I am not alone in thinking that Portland's <laughs> goalkeepers are, like, at the top of the list. <laughs> And uh, speaking of the U.S. national team, uh, one of the other themes has been just uh, kind of that interplay between the national team and the NWSL because like Rose Lavelle, she only played 30 minutes in Washington's loss to Sky Blue FC. Uh, and the coach just basically came out and said, like, look, I would have loved to have played her more, but we were under orders not to do that. How do you think the league and the national team have kind of handled these competing concerns? And, and what's kind of the future of that dynamic? Does this friction continue kind of throughout the Challenge Cup? I think it does, because I think it's it's complicated in terms of like the players, um, decided to work with the national team, uh, like the the fitness coach, to decide on like their minutes and their minutes restrictions. But the reason it was, you know, there's so much more like complications than like 240 characters will allow. But <laughs> the reason there's such a strong reaction is because of the national team involvement in the league and um, just feeling like there's different levels. It kind of feeds into why Houston feels like the underdog because they don't have any national team players and like who is in charge. Is it the national team or the NWSL? And there's been talks of for the longest time of like how that divide is going to happen through ownership that is not U.S. soccer, but through the um, through the actual owners of the NWSL teams as well. So I think it doesn't go away quickly, but there's a, there's a lot of reasons for the, uh, uproar about um, Roosevelt not playing, especially because of how great of a player she is. And then you point to Andy Sullivan, who I actually, that's a good example, but I didn't want to bring it up because I'm so sad she got hurt. But I was looking forward to her getting back because she missed out on the World Cup roster. But I think I, I'm kind of in the space where like my sense of time is thrown off. So I don't really know when things would change, but I know that <laughs> it is so complicated and complex, but I can understand the frustration of like, who's in charge? Are the national team players the most important players in the league? Because the league is not the national team like feeder and also the national team isn't playing this year. So yeah, I can understand the complexities of, of it all, but also can't tweet because it's like, ah, it's only 240 characters. I can't get my point across. <laughs> Isn't that what Twitter's for? <laughs> That doesn't stop a lot of people. <laughs> well, so so the semifinals are tomorrow. Who are, what are you looking forward to watching in the semis? Do you do you have one team that you're like thinking will probably will make it through or what are you what are you expecting? I have no expectations anymore. Um I just hope for a goal because PKs are very penalties are very stressful for me. So just having <laughs> to watch I oh my just thinking about it. It is so stressful. So um, I'm hoping for some goals. Honestly, I would like to see um, like Houston and Sky Blue kind of like, since we already have North Carolina's gone, um, why don't we just have a lot of fun? Especially the teams themselves have been through so much in the last few years and the players. So I'm just kind of like, you know, why not just upend everything? So yeah. And that's, I'm just excited for some drama, but with goals scored. <laughs> Always what you want. And those are the two um, the two underdogs. Uh, in fact, uh, at our model, 
the, we give both Sky Blue and Houston exactly the same chance of winning, and they're both underdogs at, at 41%. So it's kind of weird how there was there's this symmetry between the two favorites, but then given the fact that there were so many upsets in the quarterfinals, maybe that just is a good thing for them, and, and they can kind of keep it rolling. I, I hope so. And, I mean, if it does go to penalties because there hasn't been any um, extra time, it's all about who has the best goalkeepers. And Jane Campbell is for Houston is known to say penalties and Caitlin Sheridan, who I've, I've already like fangirled over. She is just, just so great. So, I mean, if it goes to penalties, which I mean, I guess as a supporter of the underdog momentum, I guess that'd be fine because they would kind of be above, but then Alyssa Nair is, yeah, I wasn't surprised at her, her, um, saving the penalties because of what she did in the world cup last year, which another stressful time, but (laughs) isn't it hard to believe that that was just a year ago? Like that's mind boggling. (laughs) Yeah. It feels like a decade. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we can't end without talking about the big NWSL news from yesterday. Well, or that leaked yesterday, but I think is actually coming out today that Reddit founder, Alexis Ohanian, better known as Mr. Serena Williams is partnering with Mia Hamm and others to bring an NWSL team to Los Angeles. What does a move like that mean for the league? I think the biggest thing that stood out to me was the level of ownership and investment from like the tech industry, but also all these actors and like all these former players, so many women. I think that, I mean, the growth, because we've been talking about this for like a long time and the growth is finally happening. But I think the way it's happening is one could be a model because I'm still kind of shocked because I mean, I didn't know I knew about the team coming and like the like one of the owners. but I didn't know the level of ownership. And I'm like, Natalie Portman is so cool. Yeah, Natalie Portman, that seemed that was out of the blue to me. That seems so cool. <laughs> I think the. There's so there are many different levels to reason I'm excited. Of course, LA because of the media market, and I think that is only only a good thing. But also the influencers, the like I think just everything about this signals growth. Yeah, and it's exciting to me to have more teams, another place for the goalkeepers to go and <laughs> shine and not be on the bench. So I think I don't know. I'm kind of excited. And I do want a team here in Atlanta, but I'm willing to wait if it's kind of this. Yes, this <laughs> level of investment because I think. This is always what fails women's sports is like when there's an investor who kind of is like, I think this is going to happen quickly or I kind of want a quick return on my investment, which it just always takes time. And I think I can tell by reading uh, Meg Linehan's reporting at the uh, Athletic, who I'm a big fan of, but I think reading that, you can tell everyone is just so excited and they care so much. And I think that is such a great tone. One good thing in 2020. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that that is that is our one bright spot in 2020 absolutely well I think we can leave this here for now Bria thank you so much for joining us I'm so hyped right now for the semis tomorrow I'm ready I'm ready to go come yes. on dash thank you for having me I'm like you have me excited too and I'm like I haven't even had coffee yet so <laughs> that's a real sign yeah <laughs> all right we'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, we are delighted to welcome 538 visual journalist Anna Wiedeker. How's it going, Anna? 
Hello. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> so good to have you on the show. Thank you. So you just published an amazing story up on our site right now about how endurance athletes and specifically long distance runners are kind of adapting to a world that is not holding marathons or ultra marathons because of the coronavirus. It seems like people are just out there running into the woods. <laughs> yep. And more than probably they were before because everything is closed down. <laughs> so talk to us about what what these um, what these athletes are doing, what they're trying, what kind of records they're trying to set. Right. Okay. So like an FKT, FKT um, fastest known time is uh, an unofficial record, though. I mean, if you ask the community, they'd probably say it's pretty official um, <laughs> in their spheres. And basically it's uh, routes anywhere from around the world, um, typically on trails, though there are some exceptions. Uh, they can be up mountains, they can be out and backs, they can be um, eight, like A to B's or uh, full loop trails. And uh, basically, you just need to run it faster than anybody else has ever run it before. So that means, you know, if there's already a record standing, you have to beat that record, whether it's eight hours or two days or 46 days. Um, it can be <laughs> a number of, of, of types. I'm sorry, uh, 46 few... days? <laughs> I like that yeah, range, eight hours yeah. to 46 days. <laughs> yeah, like I said, they, it's an endurance sport. So um, all of the crazies are in there too. So yeah, uh, that's that's kind of the gist. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. So what sort of trails are runners using to do this? What kind of routes are we talking about? Yeah, so like I said, they're typically on uh, trails. So maybe in national parks or in you know wilderness areas um, as opposed to road. Many are on classic uh, trails. I wrote about that in my piece. So the Appalachian Trail, which goes from Georgia to Maine, 2,000-something miles. PCT, Pacific Crest Trail, which goes um, from California, the base of California, Oregon, and Washington. And so basically kind of any um, any outdoors trails. There was one recently uh, approved for in, in Central Park called the Central Park Loop Challenge, which is a totally different thing than the Appalachian Trail. It's not in the mountains not an alpine tundra it's along the main road of central park um and the challenge there was just to see how many laps uh, this guy could run uh, from the opening time of the park which is 6 a.m until the closing time which is 1 a.m so it could and, be anything yeah and, and how many laps was that he Did ended he up doing that? 11 yeah so <laughs> if the the loop is 6.1 miles 11 laps that's a little more than 66 miles um <laughs> And the gist of it really is like when you talk to the guys who set up uh, fastestsometimes.com, they're kind of the 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 commissioners of what, what a route is and whether it's whether it can be verified as an FKT route. They say something like it needs to be creative. It needs to be something that other people are going to want to do, right? So they're fostering a community. They want to make sure other people are interested in it and are going to best it. So you could have a really really crazy route and it still might not get verified, even though it's kind of the the edginess is there. Because if no one wants to do it, then why does it exist? Now, speaking of that record keeping, um, how like how does one go about recording a fastest known time and then getting it put onto the website that other people can try to break it? Like, what's the process there? Right. Yeah. So you know, there's a couple ways you can, of course, submit a route without submitting, you know, your actual recording of your run. So you can say, like, I know this route is really cool. I've already scouted it. Um, it's one it's one way to do it. Maybe not a lot of runners want to do that because they don't want to give it away. So they could draw those waypoints on a number of um, GPS or GPX uh, apps, basically to say, here's the route and here's here's how I know it works. It's on a hiking trail system already. Um, the other way to do it is, of course, to 
uh, temp the root. Um, you will, by default, if it's a new root, get the OKT, which is the only known time on that root. Um, <laughs> and you know, if you're into endurance running, if you're into endurance cycling, or even not endurance, but both still those sports, you use like a Garmin or uh, an Apple Watch. I mean, there's a number of smart watches and smart devices. You can use your phone. Strava is a really popular app in this scene that basically tracks you, uh, sends like your locator coordinates, but uh, it collects those coordinates and then it um, solidifies them down into, for example, a GPX file, which saves all those coordinates. It plots them on um, on, on a map and then you can just send them in. I love the idea of an OKT. I feel like I must have said an OKT at some point, you know, <laughs> just walking around, you know, nobody else has tried it. I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of jokes about that in the sphere. It's like, well, I know I have the OKT from my couch to my sofa or my couch to my refrigerator during quarantine or whatever. <laughs> but, so. but like for real. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yeah, but I haven't been outside. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, so Anna, the, the, the kind of impetus of your story is that there have been like a lot of fastest mm -hmm. known times this year, right? So what, wh how, how, like how many more are we seeing now than we would just in a normal year? Right. I mean, if we have data going back to uh, 1985, but I think like what really put FKTs in the map was uh, in 1999, the, the guys who commissioned basically the, the sphere now um, did an, an FKT uh, on the John Muir trail in 1999. And that was kind of the first one that set it all off. And we're talking just like a couple a year, maybe a couple dozen a year. Um, once we got to 2018, let's say in June of 2018, we were looking at 56 FKTs, just 56 in that month, which is not a lot. I wouldn't say that like, oh, it's a wild sport. Um, 2019, it was 105 FKTs in the month of June. So and I'm referencing June because a lot of them are done in the summer, right? If you're looking at altitude or um, some trails, you want to be doing them in the summer. Um, so if we look at 2019, that's double, but 105 is almost double. Um, and then if you look at June of this year, 489 FKTs were done in June. Boom. So it's like five times as many. Um, <laughs> so we're looking at like exponential uh, curve growth as opposed to your good old linear growth. And is this something that like marathoners are just kind of doing because they can't necessarily do the usual marathon uh, mm -hmm. schedule? Or are these, you know, just a, a mix of a bunch of different kinds of runners th that have exploded the popularity? Yeah, I would say it's both, right? So I know I know from experience, my all of my races this year got canceled. Um, that is what Buzz and Peter, the guys who run the site, or two of the guys who run the site said, they said they've been receiving a lot of submissions that say, hey, I was supposed to run the Boston. I was supposed to run New York. I was supposed to run XYZ, but I couldn't. It got canceled. So I did this, hands the <laughs> X coordinates um, to them. Um, so yeah, they're, they're definitely seeing traditionally, you know, more road race oriented people, people who are still in fit shape because they, you know, you things got canceled last minute. It wasn't like in January, all the races got canceled. Uh, it's definitely a different you know, I do think it, FPTs take a different skill set. And we can talk more about that if you're interested. Um, it's not a super easy switch, but I think, you know, an endurance mind is definitely the start of what it takes to switch over to KT as opposed to a 26.2 normal road race marathon. Yeah, that's interesting that like that you're sort of teaching yourself a different skill too. If you were a, a more traditional marathoner to begin with, um, now having to navigate, you know, big swings in altitude, that seems like that would be 
hard. <laughs> I mean, all of it seems hard to me, not going to lie, but that part seems like a thing I wasn't even thinking about. Like, it's not just like you're running on a flat surface. You are not aggressively not when you're on like the long trail. It doesn't also, it also means you're not running all the time, right? You might be like speed hiking or joking, like walk jogging. Um, <laughs> you might be using different equipment to get yourself up there faster. You, um, you are definitely taking in different food, right? You're downing high caloric intake foods, which might not taste good all the time, which might not look good all the time. You're trying to get mm -hmm. down fast and trying to make that good on the digestive system so you can sleep your five hours or your 30 minutes or whatever you need to like move on to the next thing. Um, so it takes a lot of problem solving, let's say, especially if you're doing an unsupported one, you wanna filter your own water, how, how long does it take, what tech do you bring? Um, you're carrying all the stuff on your back. I, like it's the gamut. It's a different beast. It's it sounds just horribly uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I understand comfort is not the goal, but like, wow. Um, but you can see how people who are stuck inside of you know in lockdowns, you're like, you know what I need an adventure. And I'm yeah, gonna go, I'm, gonna go I'm gonna mash up my Fritos and put them in water, and I'm going to eat that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was that was what I wanted to ask you about next, Anna, was um, do you think that this sudden explosion uh, because of the pandemic uh, is sort of a runway for uh, more, you know, sustained growth going forward and, you know, getting like sponsorships and sort of, you know, some of the stuff that we see with um, traditional marathons coming to the world of trail running? Yeah, I mean, there's still already a ton of like, I think it's just not on a lot of people's radars if they're not interested in, in endurance sports. You know, Red Bull has been sponsoring a lot of crazy for a, a long time about endurance. It's kind of their thing, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're right. Um, that is the tagline. Crazy <laughs> sponsor. It. Um, yeah, no, like uh, they've been doing virtual stuff. They've been doing uh, a lot of like sky running, uh, sky mountaineering. This is, you know, that's that scene already. Um, but yeah, Salomon, uh, Hoka One One, all these like shoe companies, they're, they're getting in on it. Um, there's a lot of money in it. There's a lot of athletes that want, you know, if you have a sponsor, you can also attempt different things. You know, those are the sponsors are going to get you out there, going to bring three pairs of shoes for you to switch out in when you're doing the AT all 2000 miles, they're going to bring, um, you know, pacers, there's a lot of, there's a lot of money and fertile ground to be made there. And of course, this year we saw this year and last year, we saw a lot of the sub two marathoning, right for the road races. Um, Nike was behind that these vapor flies, the all this like mm -hmm. carbon technology. Um, it's a, it's a similar situation when you have a big, a big sponsorship um, backing, you're able to get onto maybe more remote areas and remote trails. So well, as you were looking through these FKTs, what was kind of the wildest trail that that you saw that runners are attempting right now? So, you know, right now there's a there's a lot of good classic ones. I mean, you know, my spectrum of wild, right? Because I've been looking at this for a while is definitely different than everybody else's spectrum <laughs> of wild, right? Um, so Sarah Hansel just did a really awesome FKT on Lens 14. And Nolan's 14 is this um, it's a really interesting route. It's in Colorado. It goes through 14 of the 14,000ers. Um, so mountains over 14,000 in the Sawatch range. Um, and the interesting part of this route is it's capped at 60 hours. So if you go 60 hours in one minute, your FKT doesn't count. Oh, it's also, wow. also not an FKT at that point. Right. Um, and you can do you can do it um, from a lot of different ways. You can approach the route from a lot of different ways. It's not a single track. So 
that means you just have to have, I think, at least 40,000 feet of climbing um, tracked and going around 80 miles. So it's definitely more of those like abstract records as opposed to from Georgia to Mount Katahdin, that's the AT. Um, so she just did it in two days and nine hours, which is crazy. That is bonkers, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's another wow. woman, Carla Molinaro, she's a sponsored athlete going from, she's doing this route called Le Jog, which is from the southern tip of Great Britain, uh, so Land's End, to the northern tip of Great Britain in Scotland, um, which is called uh, George uh, John O'Groats. That's where the it comes from. Le George John. Anyway, <laughs> naming of these routes is also a, a thing in itself, and it's 874 miles. She's attempting to beat the world record of 12 days, um, so she'll have to put in 70 miles a day, which is crazy. Um, but she'll, she'll have transverse the. Uh, traverse the entire country or the entire area of Great Britain. So that's so wow. That's really that's amazing. Some I, really women inspiration out there just yeah. bucking those miles out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is um inspirational or um shaming. I'm not <laughs> sure. I feel very <laughs> my the route from my uh couch to my refrigerator doesn't look as quite as uh okay um, T focus on those right now, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> no one else has has done that. That's really true. <laughs> Except you hold the women's record man. for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. I hold the women's record. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is so fun. Such an interesting. Um, I love the like the things people are doing to keep sports in their lives right now. Yeah. Um, and I'm very impressed by all of these records. I I, I expect that you'll set the FKT for women around Central Park very soon, right? I well, I'm looking at that. I mean, I promised <laughs> in my interview with the with the Peter and Buzz that you know I'd be there's no women's record. So as yeah, soon as I can yeah. brave the metro to get to Manhattan, which I haven't <laughs> seen in six months, um, I right. will I'll be doing that. <laughs> That's yeah. First you have to cross the bridge, then yeah. you can start the run. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, Bria, and Anna, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.